Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 322. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 322 you're listening to. My guest today is Matthew Rafino, who is a music mixer for NBC's Today Show. Matthew emailed me relaying his experience with uh, former WCA guest Michael Brower and how much he loved that interview and his experience with him and generosity that Michael had shown him over the years. And he just wanted to you know, say how much he loved my interview with him, which was a couple episodes back. And I get to the bottom of the email and it says... Thanks, Matthew Rufino, Music Mixer, NBC Today Show. Immediately, I replied and said, you've got to come on the show. You definitely are working in an area that I'm sure a lot of people would like to know about. So, super excited for you to hear this interview and hear about Matthew's world. Matthew Rufino, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about tax season. Mm. Don't I pick the fun topics to talk about? Tax season. I bet you couldn't wait to get to this rant, huh? Yeah, I'm kidding, of course. Sarcasm aside, it's a fact of life. It's something we all have to deal with. So I'm spending this past weekend, as I record this, going through and making sure all my categories in my QuickBooks software are correct so that I can print out a profit and loss statement and a Schedule C deduction sheet for my accountant to do our taxes. I'm using QuickBooks Self-Employed. I'm going to include a link in the show notes and the link also exists in the WCA recommendations on the website. That is an affiliate thing, so that gives a little kickback to the show when you click on that link and and sign up. So just want to be transparent with you about that. That'll give you uh, 50% off for the first six months at $7 a month and then it goes back up to $15 a month afterwards. And it's just been a really great tool for me to manage my transactions as a freelancer and allow me to track my expenses and you know do things like profit and loss statements and all that. So check that out. In the meantime, regardless of whether you use the software or not, I'm finding that it's best to have a dedicated card used for business. Now, whether that's a credit card or debit card, it just makes it a lot easier. So I can now go to the account for my American Express, which is a a business card for Delta that I get points off of for Delta, of course. And I can scan through and I can know that every single transaction there is 100% business. My early mistakes going back, not not actually that long ago, were intermingling the, the business and the personal on one card. Wasn't doing it for me. And I found that when I dedicated one card to personal, one card to business, separate those two out, it really made deciphering what the transactions were easy because I could look at a transaction and go, okay, you know, like most people, we buy a lot of stuff on Amazon and some things are gifts for the kids, some things are school things, sometimes, you know, you're buying some little knickknack you need for the house, but other times you're buying like hard drives, right? And I can look and see which card that went on and know, oh, that's a business transaction, not a problem. So that makes that makes categorizing really easy. Another thing to think about, and I just have to say this, I am not a financial guru, but it's something that you should consider is a solo 401k. 
that's something that my accountant advised me to open up so I could save for retirement. So I do a regular contribution to that each month. You know, that builds up over time. And you can go through any of these services, you know, whether it's um, Vanguard, which I'm signed up with, you know, maybe you have an account at Charles Schwab or Fidelity or E-Trade, you know, wherever it is you do your thing for retirement, check it out. Solo one four zero one k Ask your accountant if that's something that applies to you because you don't want to sign up for something and not get the, the benefits out of it. Okay, now receipts. Let's talk about that for a minute. One of the things I really enjoy about the QuickBooks thing is it allows me to attach a PDF receipt of what it is I'm trying to deduct into the software. It helps you keep track. Now, ideally, I would do it as I go. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. And I get to the end of the year and I'm like, oh, okay, I got to go find all those receipts. But that's pretty easy. No matter what service you buy from or company you buy from, you could just go into your inbox and in your email and find most of that stuff. Some companies keep your invoices or your receipts online so you can access them at any time. I find that really beneficial, but make sure you do assign those receipts to the transaction in QuickBooks. If you're old school and you're doing like the shoebox thing, Try to get a little more organized about it. Uh, it's a good thing if you get if you get paper receipts, uh, make sure you're taking pictures of them and you're filing them in a, in a proper way so that you can access them later. There's a lot of different apps out there for doing that. Mileage, that's one that you definitely wanna keep track of. Now with COVID, I know a lot of us really aren't doing a lot of driving. And in fact, your car insurance may have gone down as a result, or you may have, you know, lobbied your car insurance company to lower your bill. And if you have it, you might want to consider doing that because you're just not driving as much as you used to. I'm sure of it. However, if you are still driving and you have that expense, make sure you're logging it. QuickBooks is good for doing that. The home office deduction. Now I have a small space and it is definitely a business space. You want to make sure you deduct that, but be careful. Don't overdo it. Talk to your accountant because that is one of the number one things, at least in the United States, one of the number one things that the IRS flags when people are getting a little kooky about it, right? You want to be honest. You want to be transparent about it. Don't, don't try to mess with the IRS. It's just a recipe for disaster. These are things to consider. I know that tax time can be a stressful time for a lot of you, and some of you may have not even filed your taxes for a couple years. Get to it. Find a great accountant. Get those things filed. Stay up to date because uh, it's just one less stress in your life. And when you have your financial house in order and you've purged all the problems out of that, like not doing your taxes, it really can take the edge off you mentally and relieve a lot of stress. At the end of the day, whatever you do, I highly encourage you to find a good accountant to seek advice from. You may know somebody, you may get a referral, uh, but definitely try to find somebody that's going to help you get your financial house in order and stay on top of your taxes. Because as we've talked about in the show endlessly, if you don't take care of your business, you're going to have some issues. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Matthew Rafino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Tell me about your upbringing and how music or recording played a part in that upbringing. Actually, it started really early for me. I grew up typical middle-class New Jersey suburb. The first memory of music I have is my dad playing American Pie, Don McLean. And I had a harmony acoustic and just strumming on it. And I didn't know any chords, but I could like feel the rhythm in that song. You know, it's got like a thing to it. And I remember that. And then I guess whenever it was in the mid 80s, I remember seeing like the Buddy Holly story and La Bamba. They both came out in that time range, I guess. And I thought, man, I want to be a rock star. Got a guitar at nine, electric guitar and Appetite for Destruction from Guns N' Roses. And I was off to the races. By 12, I had a little Porta 2, 4 track and a drum machine or Porta, whatever it was. And I was using that in my bedroom. And then I got a four track that, a Fostex that had four inputs instead of just two so I could record a band and got into a band in like 14. And that's what I did all through high school. I ended up with all your typical 90s Alesis reverbs and stuff like that. And in my grandparents' basement, recorded every rehearsal from the first one and built up. Eventually I had little things here or there, free mics and this and that. And when I was 14, on cable access, I saw a recording studio had a show, 
And it was only like two towns from my house. So I just showed up there and said, like, I want to do studio work. I want to work here. And it was like a 70s studio with the shag carpet and, you know, real kind of old school. And they said, okay. And so I spent like every day after high school over there, basically, learning on reel to reel and mixing and sessions. And that was my job in high school. It's funny, your Don McLean thing, growing up, I used to hear that song as a, as a very little kid and I would sit in the back seat of my parents' car and my dad would play that song and, you know, he'd start to sing it. My dad would sing it and I would say, sing pie, dad, sing pie. Yeah, yeah, same so thing. So the minute you say that, it just like locks that old memory in. I just remember strumming the rhythm. Like it's a real rhythmic acoustic part and I didn't know guitar, but I thought, oh, I'm chunking along on this thing and it feels like I'm playing the rhythm and I was like oh this is music this is really cool you know and that was it I always ask this of people who play music and that's a focus of their world and then find their way into recording did you at any point start to lose interest in being a player and become more attracted to being an audio pro yeah I think I didn't have the discipline to play. I was really into it when I was younger and, and I played in a lot of like punk and hardcore bands and that stuff. And I was involved and like, I actually had Steve Evitz on. He was like my God as a kid in New Jersey in the 90s. We couldn't afford to go to his studio. So I was into that. But then my dad took me to a blues bar. He's a guitar player. And I got up on stage with a blues band when I was like 16 and started playing blues, which then got me into jazz. And so I was into it, but I was just better at the engineering. And I, when I went to school, I realized there was no way I could keep up with some of the guys that were just naturally good. So I wanted to stay involved somehow, just stay involved in music. And I thought, well, I'm better at recording than I am at playing. I wonder, do you think recording can be more forgiving because it's easier to find a place for yourself in recording? Yeah, you know, at the time, I think when I really started going that direction, I was at that age when high school was ending and it's harder to keep your friends in the bands going because they're going off in the directions. And I felt like I was the only one charging ahead. But with recording, I could not have to deal with that and record other people's bands and just rely on myself to keep recording. So it kept me involved in the music and I didn't have to rely on anyone else, but just other bands to be with. I didn't have to manage it. I felt like I was managing my bands, keeping everyone together. Were you the herder of cats? Yeah, yeah. And then when someone didn't show up for rehearsal, I'd get upset about it. You know, we're trying to do this and you're not here. And with recording, it's a lot easier to just worry about yourself, I guess. You were mentioning earlier cable access, shag carpet. Tell me about that place. When you say you went down there. Yeah, Tashir Studios. It's a couple of towns over from me and it was in a sort of residential sort of commercial area. And the guy had his main house and then the second building was the studio. I saw this thing. They had a phone number and they offered like guitar lessons and stuff. And I called and said, yeah, I want to come down. And I came down and said, I really don't want guitar lessons. I'll take them, but I want recording lessons. And they're like, well, we really don't do that. And I said, well, I'll just pay you what it is for guitar lessons, but we'll be in the control room. And they were like, all right. And then I just stayed every day to the point where in high school, I had a bad grade in the class. I forget what it was. And I convinced the school to let me take a test at the recording studio and use that so I would pass the class. What was the class? It was an elective. It was some like art class or something. And I wasn't paying attention. And I was, I was in high school, but I was like, well, I'm going to college for music anyway. I'm already working my job. Can we do this? So the studio made up like a test for me and I took it, you know, what is it, cardioid mic or whatever, and kind of helped me get through high school. <laughs> 
So there's something there that I want to highlight. Two events. Number one, you going and saying, hey, I really don't want guitar lessons. I want recording lessons. We could do it like this. And then second, making up this test and convincing the school to do it in the control room. There's two events there in which you push the boundaries a bit of what is possible. Does that theme play out throughout your life? I think in a way, I think it's partially that and partially right place, right time, and just taking advantage of those opportunities. In some places, I've sort of created roles for myself where there wasn't, I guess, and just try to hang around. You know, every place I've been, there's sort of been like a little connection mm-hmm. as I've gone down the road and one leads to another, leads to another. Where did recording, quote unquote, recording lessons lead to? And actually, let me back up. Tell me about those recording lessons and what did you get out of that? Oh, it was awesome. It was a small little studio, 16-track analog, a little 24-channel board, and the typical outboard gear stuff you'd see in the mid-90s at a $35 an hour studio. But I would go in, and I learned the basic stuff in the beginning, how to align the tape machine, and what type of mics are, and how to plug stuff in, and what's a headphone mix. And a lot of times, I would just go in after school, and they would have no sessions, or they'd be giving guitar lessons, and I'd just put up whatever reel of tape was there from the day before, and I'd mix. I think that's how I really got into mix because I just go to the studio. My grandmother would drop me off and I wasn't even old enough to drive, drop me off. And I'd sit in the control room from like 3.30 till seven and just mix whatever song they were doing, plugging in reverbs and whatever and trying to figure it out. And then they'd let me in on sessions and I was assisting and, you know, it was all small stuff. It was a small place and they weren't doing any huge acts, but it set me on the path. It was a great place to learn and they were really good people, really good people. That takes some focus and a little bit of fearlessness, like, well, I'm just going to put up the reel of tape they had here the day before. I didn't think of it like that. They treated me really nice there, and I respected the equipment, and I had already played them all my recordings that I had been doing, because at that point, I'd probably been recording at home for two or three years, and yeah, they just let me do whatever, you know? They were really Mm. cool about it. It was like my little playland when there wasn't sessions. I didn't do a lot of recording there because it was hard to get people in and out, but just mixing all the time and playing around. Yeah. I think that's how I got used to being in the control room alone all the time. Tell me about your family life early on, because I'm trying to figure out where this like go to it kind of mentality comes from and this this kind of fearlessness and make your own rules. Where do you think that comes from in your in your childhood? Oh, well, definitely my grandfather, both my grandfathers. My one grandfather is actually a Hammond repair guy and like a whirly tech, and he was friends with Tony Bongiovi. So we were going to the power station from the time I was a little kid. At one point, my dad was Tony's uh, lawyer. So I was in and out of the power station when I was 10, 12 years old all the time anyway. So just seeing all of that, my other grandfather was an attorney, but he worked during the day and at school, got his law degree at night while raising a family while he was in his 50s. He didn't even have a degree when he started. So just watching his hard work, he wasn't the smartest guy. He had to take the bar exam a few times, but he kept plugging away. Just got to put in the work. That's always stuck with me. Just got to keep going. And you mentioned Tony Bongiovi. And for the listener, if you're not aware, I believe that is John Bongiovi's uncle. Yes. Yep. Who played a critical role to the band's early start. Yeah. Well, he designed the power station. I mean, Tony created the power station. So Avatar, all that stuff, that's him. So it was great. I learned from him. He would take me in the control room and show me things and tell me stories about doing like Ozzy Osbourne records and Motown. And I'd play in my four track stuff and he would tell me what stunk and what was good. And just walking into that place as a kid, it was like, wow. (laughs) 
I'm in the 70s Shack Carpet Studio two towns away, and then you're standing in Studio A at the power station. It's just unreal, kind of life-changing for me, definitely. After recording lessons, where did you end up? What was the next stop? I made a quick stop for a couple of semesters at Five Towns College where I was studying jazz and guitar and recording. Because I had been in the studio, the recording 101 was very boring to me. And I just felt like I wanted to get into the studio. And I knew I couldn't hold up with these jazz cats. I mean, they were just so good. There was no way. I knew that there was no way I was going to make it through four years. So I left and I ended up spending half a year working for CBS Sports on one of their trucks doing remote stuff. Kind of a crazy story. But after that, I went to SAE for a course, whatever the course was at the time in New York. Um, New York City was like their first year, I think. And I got the degree with the technical certificate. And then through Tony, I got an internship at Avatar Power Station. That's where it really all started, getting to learn from all these great guys. And it was an amazing time. It really was. It was also an interesting time because I got hired, I don't know, two or three months before September 11th. So like I watched the old into the new way things went. It was like pre-September 11th and then post and then Napster in between somewhere and then everything like changed budgets and just the amount of studios and the city were closed. It was an interesting time. It was a hard time because people weren't moving up the ranks because they were just happy to have an assisting gig. Mm. At the time, Avatar staff assistants were on salary. It wasn't gig to gig, so no one was leaving. So I did four years there as like a general assistant, but I couldn't move forward. Eventually, just I wanted to go do more, so I had to leave. But it was such an experience. It was amazing. You mentioned September 11th specifically. Yeah. What are your observations of the effect of that on the area, in specifically in recording? So that day, I was supposed to be in for like a 4 p.m. session, which obviously I didn't get to. And I remember the next day I took the train in. I, f I had to be there early, like 9 a.m. or something. I took the bus in actually, and you could still see the, the smoke coming up from the towers. And when I got into New York, I walked up Ninth Avenue up the middle of the road because everything was closed and it was just really eerie. And I got to the studio and I think there was like one session, but everyone else had canceled. And it was like that for a while. It was really weird and quiet and just eventually I felt like everyone banded together in the city and it just, you know, over time started to feel better, but it was a while. And I think the recording industry held together, but everyone was scared. And I think even the studio owners were like, we don't know what's going to happen. Clients weren't flying anywhere at the time. So I remember we were supposed to do like a lot of Sony Japan jazz stuff or whatever it was we were doing. And that wasn't going to happen. So it was a lot of downtime. Yeah, I guess because travel in general to a place, New York specifically, it's like, it's like a, a tide pool. There's a constant movement. And then all of a sudden... There's no movement. Yeah, it was just weird. It was a weird time, but you know, I think everyone made the best of it. And at that time, I, I was so young. I was like 19 years old or something like that. You know, I was just trying to keep my head above water and not get in trouble and learn all the lessons I can. So I look back as one of the best times of my life without a doubt. It was so much fun. The post 9-11 time period where things started to pick up, obviously, as travel started to resume and we started to kind yeah. of get back to quote unquote normal, what overall changed 
in your observation, you talk about studios closing, we're talking about Napster era type activity for the music industry with some studios closed, but those who survived, what do you think that allowed them to survive? You know, I was so young then and so new to things. That's really hard for me to even think about what the studio managers must have been thinking at the time. Avatar at the time had a big staff, three or four techs and five full-time assistants and five or six general assistants and all this stuff. I can't imagine how Kirk must have felt. I mean, it must have been like the weight of the world on your shoulders, just hoping that things stay busy, you know, get busy and then get slow, get busy and slow. But then it was just consistently a place, especially as other studios closed, just stayed busy. Mm. It's just a great place. So of course, people are going to want to go there. Where did your career progress from that point? I was there for about four years and I wanted to make a move. I wanted to engineer and I wanted to go freelance. And I had a couple of records and things on the horizon with, with some clients that were happening. And then the whole fluke thing happened with NBC where I ended up there and I was originally freelancer with them. So once I got that gig, I decided to leave Avatar and I was doing NBC a couple of days a week, which was really paying my bills. And then I was making records at different studios and I bought my own 888s and you know all that stuff back in the day. Mm-hmm. Mix plus plus with a system and all that. And <laughs> the first record I landed with these great guys, this, this group, Temporary Grace, and they had a bit of a budget, not huge. And we were figuring out where to go to record. We ended up going to Power Station New England to cut the drums up there. And I'm looking at all these little studios in the city to do overdubs and they're like what if we just take the rest of the budget and we'll buy you all the gear you want with it and we'll buy all the stuff you can have whatever you want my family has a huge mansion on the beach in south jersey we can set up there and finish the whole record oh that's what the band said yeah so they offered me we'll buy the gear Instead of paying for the studio time, you come down and we'll do the record there. So I said, let's do it. And we were there for eight months making a record. It was one of the most fun times of my life, doing a record four days a week and then maybe going to the city, do a couple of gigs with NBC and then go back and live in this house. And it was crazy. It was a dream. You talk about the fluke with NBC. What do you mean? Explain that. Well, I got that gig because my father met the director on the train one day. (laughs) And said to the guy, you know, well, my son does audio. And he said, well, have him call this guy. And I called a guy who worked on the show and he said, come down and I'll introduce you to the guys. And I went down there and I met this guy, Brian, Brian Lang. He was an A2 on the show. So which meant he put microphones on people and all that. And he introduced me to the tech manager, this guy, Keith. And he said, well, at the time it was like November. He said, well, it gets slow in the winter, so I won't have anything for you, but you're totally qualified. I can get you in to do some A2 work to start and we'll see where it goes, but I won't have anything till the spring. I said, okay. So then I called him every Monday morning when the show ended at 10 o'clock for like six months until he finally said, okay, you can come in today. So I came in and I did A2 a few times and they said, hey, can you mix monitors? And I said, "Mm, sure. (laughs) The guy trained me and my first gig was Elvis Costello with 13 wedges and side fills. And I had no clue what I was doing. I winged it. It was probably Elvis's worst monitor mix he ever heard, but I got through the gig and I guess NBC thought, well, he got through the gig, so he's qualified. So he can do that now. And I did that for a while. And then one day they needed someone to mix the show, the broadcast. And I said, I know Pro Tools. And they just put a new Pro Tools-based studio in. And I filled in. And then they said, okay, you can do that. 
And then a lot of politics. It was back and forth between me and another guy. So they would say, Matt, you mix this show. And then the other guy mixed this show. And then they did that for about almost two years, but I'd mix like 10 shows in a row. And then this other guy would mix one. And then I'd mix 10 and I wasn't the guy. A lot of politics I don't need to get into, but then they offered me to become the full-time guy about 2010, maybe 2010. And then a year later I became staff. Okay. So is that, is that a union-based gig? Yeah. Yeah. It's a NABIT gig. So I'm staff with them now. So I'm basically there a minimum of 40 hours a week. And it's like a real job. You know, I go in there and mixing the Today Show is sort of a different animal than a lot of other mixing gigs, because not only am I doing the physical mixing, but I forward and advance all the shows. So I'm dealing with tour managers, production managers, ordering equipment, rentals, wireless, figuring out, oh, they want to bring in their tour package. What is our wireless frequency range here? What's going to affect TV? You know, that was stuff we already have. What can we use? Will this stuff fit all that stuff. And then from there, it spreads out. You work with the producers and such and such would like to do their performance coming in on a double-decker bus around Fifth Avenue. How can we do that? This band wants to come in off a helicopter. Well, you know, all these million crazy ideas we go through and then it's how can we do it and try to pull it off. So you specifically focus on mixing only the music acts? Yeah, I don't do anything but the music. And that, I mean, that's a full-time gig right there. We do anywhere from 180 to 225 performances a year. Mm -hmm. Each performance can have anywhere from one to six songs and be anywhere from two to 75 inputs. Every day is different. And for the outside plaza performances that you see, it's literally we do a rehearsal from 6.30 to 7 a.m. Mm. And I get to multi-track whatever I can during that rehearsal. And we tape our first song at 7.55. No matter how many inputs it is, no matter what it is, I got I got 55 minutes to get that first song ready. And that's that's it. <laughs> so it's sometimes... Interesting. Yeah. You know, then I can go back and fix some stuff for the later airing songs. Or if it's a song that airs later in the show, I'll have a few hours to play with it. But for the outside ones, it's about as fast as you can get in, in mixing. In a previous Working Class Audio episode, it was a WCA no number 292 with Jessica Paz. She was working in the world of theater sound. Mm -hmm. And she briefly mentioned A1s, A2s. Just for the audience, can you explain that hierarchy of who's who and what do they do? Sure thing. So there's the production A1, they would call it. He mixes the show, all the elements of the show. For the Today Show, that one guy has all the live microphones of all the talent and guests all the tape machines that are playing back video, all the graphics machines that are playing back swishes and noises and commercials and then voiceovers and everything. You know, pretty much his hands are full. That's a really, really hard job. Then there is the music A1, which is what I am, or music mixer who's just doing the show. Then there's the A2, which puts the microphones on the guests and talent, as well as sets up speakers in different locations, PA systems if needed. I have music A2s, so I have two guys that work setting up the stage every day. So if the band comes in with their gear and then we have our mic package, he'll come in, plug our mics in, get everything ready, and then I'll talk to him on intercom and we'll do the line check and all that. And then there's we have a monitor engineer, obviously, for in-ears and wedges, and front of house engineer for PA. A crew is about, for a concert, about 10 or 12 guys. Okay, and then does each level have a different rate of pay? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Every contract is different with unions, etc. But basically, if you're mixing, you're at the top rate. 
Okay. They do it in different groups, yeah. But it's surprisingly not that much different from group to group. It's not a huge swing. And is that a daily thing that you're doing? I mean, do you mix... Well, you, you said you mix, what, 180 to 200 plus shows? Yeah, I think the most I've ever done is like 228 one year I did. Okay. So it's a lot. Because quite honestly, like my wife and I will get up at the crack of dawn, we'll do this three-mile walk together, and then we come back, drink coffee, and quite often turn on the Today Show because that's what she likes to watch. And it's not always that I see music acts on there. So that's... Right that's now, my, it's different. Yeah, right now with COVID, we're not doing any. So right now I'm actually in A2 at the moment mm. because we're like got a skeleton crew. And until COVID changes, we can't have performances in studio. So during that time, I built my studio here and I've been working a ton from here, which has been great too. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Is there a certain stress level that you carry with you doing that show? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of 24-7 because the show never ends. We only have two dark days a year, Christmas Day and New Year's Day. So there's always another show. So <laughs> even if you kill it that day and you got Sting with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra on the plaza and you get a great mix and everyone's happy and, and then 11 o'clock hits and the show's over and it's like, I got to do this tomorrow. And then the yeah. next tour manager's calling you. He doesn't care that you feel great that you just mixed Sting today. It's like his band's coming in tomorrow. So it goes, it goes, and then things happen. Oh, this band that we are booked inside is getting really hot. We want to move them outside. Can you get the whole outside package together and delivered for tomorrow? Well, a lot of responsibility. We'll, yeah. And then you spend all afternoon on the phone. Hey, do you guys have your tour package together? Is it with you? Oh, it's not because this is a fly date. What do you need? Let me see if I can get this and put it all together for you. It's 4 p.m. and the truck's got to show up at 1 a.m. tonight. Let me see where we're at. And then the whole show is sort of waiting for you to make this all to approve it. <laughs> now, outside of NBC, 
you obviously have an audio life that's entirely separate from the show. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about that. So really, for a long time, I wasn't doing anything outside of the show. Well, I guess for a long time with today's show, it, to me, was like mixing boot camp because every day I was just going in and learning another thing. And I sort of every year would set a new expectation. This year I want to work on width. This year I want to work on depth or low end or whatever. And I would spend like a whole year sort of focused on all of these elements to my mix until I got to the point of feeling like I've got them all together now. Now I don't have to think about any of that stuff and I can just mix. And during that time, I didn't do much outside stuff. And then I started to, again, as I felt really good about things and the way my mixes were coming out. And then COVID happened like a couple of years after that. And so I just put this room together during the downtime because I thought we'd be off for a month. And originally I was just gonna mix a little bit to keep myself sane. And then things started coming in and I built the room more and more and I've been busy the whole time. It's been great since like July. Where's the room located? In my house. It's in oh. my basement. Oh, I have wow. a walkout basement and it's got my own private bathroom. So if I ever, ever want to have people come in and out, I can, but it's a full room. You know, I spent months working on it and putting it together and it's going to get a little more built out in the next couple of months. Hopefully I'm working on a couple of things, but it has all the gear I could need. And it's to me sounds just as good as what I'm mixing at NBC and people have been really liking what I'm doing with it. Is it equipped to do tracking? Technically it is. Space-wise, it isn't at the moment. I haven't tracked a band I couldn't even tell you how long. Pretty much I just mix. So I will have it set up for that only for artists that I really want to work with. Yeah. I'm going to build it out so it's got a tracking room and an ISO booth and a control room. It'll be the real deal, but I'm not going to have like ads up. You know, I want to yeah. record everyone up the street. It's just more for me to use with artists that I want to. I'm in a great position that I can do that. And I know that I'm really fortunate and blessed that I can make that the musical part of me and not have to worry about it being such a money thing because I have a full-time gig. Yeah. So this is a walkout basement. Tell me about your home life. Do you have a family or... Yes. or okay. What's the interplay between this studio and the family? It's been interesting because for the last bunch of years, even though I've had all this gear sitting here, I didn't use it very often. As COVID happened, my wife is a teacher, so she's been at home a lot. My two stepkids have been at home a lot because school has been closed. So they're seeing almost like a new side of me in a way because I'm doing so much music stuff here where it's usually I'm there, I'm work is away from here. It's been challenging for them, I think, that I'm here, but I'm not here. <laughs> it's also challenging for me, like if one of the kids comes down and they want to show me something, but you know, you're like right in the middle of that ride and you're doing this thing. And it's like, one second, honey, one second. And you're trying to shut that brain off and turn on the other one and not lose your train of thought because you're on the clock, but not do the parenting thing correctly. It's, it's a challenge. The work that you do at home, is any of it NBC related? No, I do do some outside TV stuff, but mainly it's records. It's a lot of indie. When I say indie, not just indie style, but independent artists who funding themselves type of thing. It's a lot okay. of word of mouth. Just people find me, it seems. And then one leads to another one. And But it's been very consistent, actually. It's been, I'm surprised. January is a little slow, but I've worked on some things that I wanted to. Yeah, but you're still going into NBC as an A2. Yeah, I, I kind of lead a double life every day. It's sort of always been the case. I just work all day, all the time. I get up at about 1.30 in the morning. 
And I leave here by three and I get to the city by 4.15. And then I do the show until about 11. And then I get home around 12 and I get a workout in. Now from home instead of a gym. And then I mix till about seven at night and have dinner and go to bed. <laughs> what time do you go to bed? It's sometime between seven and eight usually. Wow. I've that... been doing it for like ever. Oh my gosh. When I was working in other studios, it was the same thing. I would leave NBC, I'd mix the show, and then I'd go do a 12-hour session somewhere, you know? And it was just, because I was a freelancer for eight years, and I was always worried that it was going to go away. So I mm -hmm. just, oh, I can work 24 hours in a day. I'll just keep booking myself until I have to stop. Yeah, you know you know how that is when you're young. You're afraid you're going to, someone impressive. else is going to get there. I mean, it's impressive that you've disciplined yourself on that schedule. That's a difficult schedule. So how does that impact your health? You mentioned working out. What do you do to make sure that you don't look like you're getting up at one in the morning? You look quite healthy. So tell me about that. About 13 or 14 years ago, I quit smoking cigarettes and put on a bunch of weight after that. So I wanted to get in shape and I just started going to a gym and that became a regular part of my thing. I mean, almost every day before COVID, after I'd mix a show, I'd drive right from NBC to my gym on the way home and I would get a workout in. And I try to eat healthy during the week. I don't drink at all. So, uh, you know, I don't get bogged down with that. Just I sleep when I can, you know, or reserve <laughs> it on the weekends. I'm just so used to it. Even on the weekends, I'm up at 4.30 in the morning. I get up, I'm up and usually get my workout in and then I'll start a mix and I'll mix on Saturday till like noon and then spend the rest of the day with the family. Does your workout consist mostly of cardio stuff or is it? No, I do a lot of weightlifting and I can't, I got bad knees. So the cardio stuff doesn't really do so well for me. I end up injuring myself. So I just do a lot of weight and some CrossFit stuff. And I try to walk. I live up kind of on the side of a mountain in West New Jersey. So everything is a lot of hills. So I do a little four mile walk sometimes when the weather's good and with all the hills and that'll give it to you. And just trying to eat clean and I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> Join I the know club. You do. Yeah. <laughs> when you say I eat clean, what does that mean to you? I'm a creature of habit. So everything I do in general, even, you know, like my schedule with mixing, Monday through Friday, I have kind of like a set sort of diet of things that I eat. I don't eat desserts. I, your typical chicken, you know, grilled chicken and brown rice and that sort of stuff. And then on the weekend, I eat a lot of barbecue and whatever the heck I want. I try to balance it so I can do what I want on the weekends and during the week, just I eat at the same time. I do. I, I'm a very rigid kind of person with scheduling. Well, but that also frees you up in some ways, that, that kind of freedom via discipline, right? Yes. And actually, a lot of people will say to me, oh, you work those crazy hours on today's show. I could never do that. First of all, I have most of my energy in the morning, so I like mixing early. I never finished a great mix at 1130 at night, but I finished a lot of them at 11 a.m. I'm feeling good then. So it's like I get up at five, even when I'm here, if I'm up at 435, I start a mix at six and like 11, I feel great. I'm done. I got a mix done for the day. It's 11 a.m. It's not even lunchtime. Same thing with today's show. I can leave, but then all the things in life that you need to do, you can do. Oh, I need yeah. to go to the dentist. Well, I'll go at like noon on Wednesday, sure. Or I need to run to Home Depot to grab this thing or what. You can do all that. I need to get an estimate on some painting in my house. Yeah, come at Thursday at two. Oh, that's great. You're around before, you know. Yeah, of course, during the day, mm. yeah. That's interesting. Did you find it hard to dedicate the time to doing, you know, like going to the gym when maybe you wanted to rush home and do a mix for a band or was it hard to implement this this kind of discipline with eating well and 
working out? When I was going to the gym, no. Because you go to the gym and you put on your headphones and work out. Here, my gym is on the other side of this door here. And it's a small room. Well, I didn't really have a gym at first. I bought all this stuff during COVID. So I leave the door open for some space and I'm looking at my studio. So inevitably in between sets, I'm like, hmm, I could move this here and do that. No, I got to do this recall. I can't, you know, and so then in the middle of a workout, I'm thinking mixing Mm. and that throws me off. And then before I know it, I'm like, well, I should have only rested for a minute. And I did for three because I'm staring at some manual or whatever it is because it calls, it calls you. Back to mixing and such and NBC. From a mixing perspective, what has the NBC gig brought to your game of working with independent bands? Right now, I think it's helped a lot in the sense that a lot of stuff I'm getting is recorded from people at home. So they're going microphone into a Focusrite, whatever, converter, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the way that I approach a TV mix is I try to approach it like a record in the sense that if you go to record on your recording on the way in, you're going to EQ and compress a little bit to tape or the computer or whatever. And then once you go to mix it, you're going to EQ it and compress it a little more and add some stuff. And then it's going to go to mastering and get EQ'd and compress some more. So I do all of that in real time. I have like my recording chain set up into my mixing chain set up into mastering. And so I sort of record, mix, and master I want, which you're obviously going to be boosting and cutting things more on a singer that's holding a 58 running around than a singer in a nice quiet room on a U47. That, a lot of the problem solving is helping with a lot of the home recorded tracks. So just the way I approach it, where it would be too heavy handed if it was a well recorded record. Yeah. But since it's not, it's not too heavy-handed, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then just my general approach to mixing probably comes from doing a lot of 5-1 stuff and having to down-mix and worry about down-mixing and getting yourself into trouble with that and how it appears on the web and how it sounds on the web. And I focus on that a lot because we get so many millions of views that way. So I, I definitely have sort of, I call it the funnel. That's sort of my approach to how I go about getting 64, 72 channels down to two or to six. It's just sort of an approach that I take. But it's problem solving and working fast and just going with your instincts. When constructing the studio for the home, what was some of your considerations when doing it? Did you stick to a budget? Did you go all out and do a dream studio? What was the mindset? I stuck to, I had a lot of the gear. I've been collecting gear since I was a little kid. I didn't need anything, really. A couple of things. But I wanted to start with something that I could just put in the room and take down if I didn't like it. Because it had been so long since I tried to do anything like this. And this room has been the biggest challenge ever acoustically. It just, well, from the get-go, it sounded really, really bad. Mm. So it took a lot of time. And I did it on a super tight budget. I bought most of this stuff just stuff off the rack at Depot. And then I found a lot of the wood from Facebook Marketplace, people giving away free wood. Wow. I just typed in free wood and could show up at people's driveways during COVID who were like cleaning out their houses and they didn't even want to see you. So they just leave it in the driveway. And I load up a truck full of wood and it's scrapped. Some of it was good. Some of it was trash. And I just sat in my garage every day, a couple of saws and just put it together. And I watched like every Carl Tatz video on the internet and just tried to figure out all the problems I had and listen to the same playlist for three months and 
went crazy moving stuff and watching my family look at me like, is he okay? You know, as I'm running back and forth and moving my head. And no, it was, you can make a nice room for very little. And if you mix completely in the box, you don't need that much stuff anymore. Good speakers. I mean, I have yeah. a lot of stuff. I like gear, but I'm not a gear head. Yeah. I, I just like to have all the pieces I have are broad stroke kind of things that are affecting big chunks of the mix. And I'm not inserting something on a bass guitar, you know, or kick drum or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I want to talk a little bit about the discipline that you have with your diet and your exercise and your schedule, time management. Does that same approach flow over into your your financial world in terms of discipline with money or is that a different story? Yes and no. When I was younger and I was working at Avatar, you're making like $5 an hour. Uh-huh. Or whatever, you know, whatever minimum wage was. And so I didn't have any money, you know, I was working like 85, 100 hours a week and your paycheck's like 300 bucks. So you're broke. And then when I started getting kind of like a union day rate from NBC, I definitely was like, whoa, this is in a day more than I make in a week at the studio. And I spent a lot of money and did stupid stuff that like 21 year old kids do. And paid the price and paid off all my debts. And, you know, everyone has good times and bad times, paid times and broke times, but I've been able to sort of navigate all those waters. I never went crazy with gear or every time I've got gear, it's almost always used. And I've almost always bought it at bad times in the economy Mm. when people are unloading stuff. Like I just bought some stuff during COVID because stuff was cheap on reverb and you could pick up stuff. It was the same thing during the the housing crash and all of that is when I bought the majority of my gear because I was really starting to get busy at the time. And at the time, eBay, you could get stuff super cheap because people needed to pay their bills. So I've been lucky I didn't do that. We have a nice house. We don't live crazy, but everyone's taken care of. What's your advice to other audio professionals as far as the financial aspects of the pro audio world. I feel really guilty about this one. This is something that's sort of been weighing on me a lot during all of COVID because I'm a staff engineer. I have a salary like I work for a corporation. So I don't have that worry anymore. And it's a union job and there's seniority and other things. So I sort of live in this little small sector of the audio world. I almost feel like I shouldn't be the one giving advice because it's been so long since I've been a freelancer. It's been like 12 or 13 years. When I was a freelancer, all I know is that I was afraid that I was going to be broke all the time. So I just worked like 24 seven. Buy what you need gear wise. Mm -hmm. Don't get any credit card company, gear manufacturer credit cards and do the whole payment thing. That never gets you anywhere. And don't buy computer stuff for top dollar because that's the only gear that I've ever lost money on is... DAWs. Oh my gosh. I've had every Pro Tools rig since Audio Media Card, you know, whatever it was, the original. And every time I write that check, it's the worst feeling. And then every time I trade it in, it's just so such a little bit of what that original check was. But if you buy a used 1176, odds are, if you don't trash it, you're going to get what you paid for it down the road. That's right. It's hard to know what's going to go up in value or or hold its value, but the easily identifiable things that you know are going to lose value are computers and DAW setups. Yeah. After I got my Mix Plus system, HD came out like two months later. So I learned my lesson right then because then I had to stay on that system 
for like years and years and years. And I was on HDXL until last year, until I went to HDX. And all of those, I've gone the used route even too. I kind of give it a few years for the market to drop a little because don't go out and buy the newest thing. You don't need it, especially if you're coming up. Where can people find out more about you? Do you maintain a presence? On the web? Yeah, I'm not the biggest. I try to post stuff up there, especially now, so I can find bands and stuff. But I'm on Instagram, Matt Rafino, and my website is mattrafinomusicmixer.com. That has all my info in there. It's got credits and videos of performances and that sort of stuff. That's fantastic. I'll include all that in the show notes, listeners, so you can follow up on everything that we're talking about here. Any last minute thoughts to those who are thinking they want to get a unionized gig or a more regular style gig in audio, what do they need to know? It's a different lifestyle than what you had if you're a freelancer. There is obviously more security, so you're not thinking about that as much. It's a different group of people. It's not a lot of the same cats that you would hang out with in the studio, so it's a different vibe. You do kind of get the feeling sometimes you're missing out, though. If you want to work with someone and you can't because you've got this gig that you have to go do, or they're not calling you anymore because they heard you work for this thing and you're not doing stuff. So sometimes you miss out on music you would like to work on. I don't have a choice in the music that I mix. The show tells me this is who is on today, and then it's my job to make them sound good and for myself to find like the most redeeming quality out of the music that I can if it's not my thing and, and get into it and try to give them 100% or more than that. You don't have that choice. You can't say, no, nah, that band's not for me. I'm going to pass. Like You're doing it whether you've heard that song for the last three months on the radio and it's driving you crazy and that band's coming in, you still got to do it. So if you're prepared to give up some things, you gain some things. But it's a very tight industry right now. All my friends in this business aren't working. I mean, it's really scary with COVID. In New York, it's sort of like a ghost town in a way with TV stuff. I mean, Fallon and Saturday Night Live are doing stuff, but Broadway shut down. So there's a lot of people in union gigs that are not working. So I'm hoping that they said September for Broadway. I'm hoping we can open everything else by then and get the community kind of happen. There's so many great professionals that no one knows their names that are in New York City that mix these. I mean, I've mixed a lot of Broadway shows that have come on the show, and it's one of the hardest things in the world to do as a mixer, especially in my case, because I got to learn the script in like 45 minutes. And mm-hmm. But those guys are really good. Yeah. You know, I mentioned Jessica Paz earlier who does theatrical sound. After I interviewed her, I was like, that's a gig I don't think I could do. That's an intensity that I'm not willing to to get involved with. When we have Broadway on the show, they're the hardest days for me. Like it really, when you're done with that, if you can pull it off and you don't miss a mic and everyone's line is like, you feel like you just ran a marathon. It's... It's over, you know? They're really (laughs) professionals and they don't get, no one knows them. They're not famous. They don't have a YouTube channel. They're just professional audio people. Yeah. In the trenches people. Yeah. And that's what a lot of the union gigs are. You know, it's a lot of waiting around to, for the thing to then hustle, to run and move a bunch of, you know, oh my guys, they work really hard. I'm sitting in a cushy control room. They're rolling cases off of trucks and moving gear and it's a hard working job. Yeah. Matthew, it's been great having you on. Glad you sent me an email so we could have this discussion. So I appreciate that. So listeners, like I said, I'll follow up in the show notes with all the links that Matthew's talked about. So thanks again, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. You take care. You too. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Matthew Rafino here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to thank the crew as usual. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith with the magical voice at the beginning of the show. If you like the podcast, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>